0: The following interview has been reposted from HLAW, a humanities and social sciences online discussion network. I hope that you visit HLAW. There are a lot of interesting materials there, and I hope that you enjoy the interview.
1: Hello, and welcome to HLAW's Legal History Podcast. This is your host, Siobhan Barco. Today, we will be discussing After Row, the lost history of the abortion debate.
0: The following interview has been reposted from H Law, a humanities and social sciences online discussion network. I hope that you visit H Law. There are a lot of interesting materials there, and I hope that you enjoy the interview.
1: Hello, and welcome to H Law's Legal History Podcast. This is your host, Siobhan Barco. Today, we will be discussing After Row, the lost history of the abortion debate. With Mary Ziegler, Stearns Weaver Miller Professor at Florida State University College of Law. Dr. Ziegler, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Could you begin the interview by saying a few words about yourself, your background, and how you became attracted to studying the intersections between historical and legal scholarship?
0: Sure. Um, I, as you mentioned, teach law at Florida State University I think I became interested in the intersection of law and history quite early when I was in law school. And I, I didn't pursue a PhD, but I wrote on the subject actually starting when I was a second year law student. And I think the reason that the subject always interested me was because it seemed to shed light on important questions that faced both judges and litigators in terms of what kind of difference law made in the real world. Uh, and because it offered up a lot of surprises about how different law once was and how different the politics that produced those laws, um, turned out to be that made me think that we had similar blind spots today. And I always found that to be provocative and important.
1: Okay. Um, would you tell us how you came to write your current work?
0: Uh, yeah. So the, the real spark for after O again, came when I was in law school. So as many listeners probably know, there have been a variety of works written about the aftermath of Brown versus Board of Education and what that history tells us about whether, for example, litigation is a good vehicle for social change, uh, what role the courts play in a democracy, and so on. And as a kind of young feminist law student, I kept waiting for the book about the aftermath of Roe and what perspective that offered, and there didn't really seem to be that kind of book. So the idea of doing a project on that really interested me as far back as law school. And I began writing articles related to the subject. And then when I started my tenure track, my first tenure track position, I pursued the idea a little bit more vigorously.
1: Okay. Um, Could you briefly tell us about the case, Roe v. Wade? Yeah, absolutely. So
0: uh, Roe came at the end of a series of challenges to the remaining abortion restrictions in the state. And Roe and its companion case, Doe v. Bolton, involved two uh, regulations, a Texas regulation that banned almost all abortions, with an exception for cases in which a woman's life was threatened. And Doe involved what at the time would have been seen as a reform statute that permitted broader access to abortion, but required women to kind of clear a variety of hurdles before they could access the procedure. Uh, The court... Uh, decided that both regulations were unconstitutional and, in effect, wiped out any remaining abortion restriction on the book in the States. Uh, Justice Blackmun relied pretty heavily on the idea of physicians' rights and medical opinion in reaching this result, um, and in a variety of ways. He looked to the medical history of abortion as a procedure, especially with respect to its safety. He highlighted the opinion of different professional organizations like the American Medical Association, uh, and he focused on the expertise of doctors in making decisions that were best for their patients. Uh, He was famously vague about the source of whatever this right to abortion was, although he said that privacy interests, the kind of privacy interests that had covered contraception, either in the marital relationship or for single persons, were broad enough to reach A woman's right to have an abortion. Uh, Roe also made waves in the way that it addressed fetal life. Uh, The court dealt with that subject in two ways. Uh, First by considering um, when the state had a compelling or whether the state had a compelling interest in protecting life uh, and second in dealing with whether the fetus was a person under the 14th Amendment. The thought was that if the fetus was a person under the 14th Amendment then both due process and equal protection would kick in and make it much harder for a woman to claim a constitutional abortion right. Uh, Justice Harry Blackmun, who's writing the majority for the court, uh, answered both of those questions in a way that would ultimately displease anti-abortion activists. He held first that fetuses were not persons under the 14th Amendment because the history and general use of the word person in the Constitution, he reasoned, would naturally apply only to people who had already been born. With respect to the question of when life began and when the state's interest in life took shape, he relied pretty heavily on reasoning that pro-choice attorneys had used. Uh, The general idea was that there was no consensus on when life began, either in the medical community or within or between different religions. And as a result, it would be unfair for the court or for any group to impose their view of when life began on everyone else. Uh, and it's, it's interesting to note too that Blackman assumed in some ways that Roe would be kind of a calming, have a calming effect on the debate. He had a poll that he kept a clipping of suggesting that over 70% of Americans believed that abortion should be between a woman and her doctor, which was the way Roe itself framed the abortion right. So I think he, like many people, were surprised by what happened after the decision
1: came down. Okay. So we'll get into more of uh, the aftermath. But could you briefly tell us about your research methodology in writing this book? Mm-hmm.
0: So like most historians, I relied pretty heavily on archival research to get um, kind of primary sources that offered a a less conventional look at what people were seeing and doing and thinking at the time. Uh, Methodologically, this, I think, is more challenging in the context of abortion than in a variety of other contexts for a few reasons. Um, A lot of archives don't have very strong collections of materials on the pro-life or anti-abortion movement. So I, I worked especially hard to try to get material either from individual activists or from kind of less conventional uh, archival locations, particularly those associated with the Catholic Church. Um, There were also challenges, I think, almost politically from the standpoint that much of the best legal scholarship on abortion is normative, not descriptive. So to kind of challenge myself to think more openly about the people I was writing about and their motivations, I also did uh, a number of oral histories, uh, over a 100 ultimately, so that I could get beyond my own caricatures of the people who would be involved in this debate and their reasons for being so passionate about the issue.
1: Okay. Um, and could you set the stage for us and discuss the pre row origins of the abortion battle?
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: So um, conflict about
0: family planning, of course, uh, began well before I mean, long, long before Roe, as the current Republican primary reminds us, we're still talking about Margaret Sanger's motivations. But uh, the the modern abortion debate, I think, took shape because the status quo, which had been in place since the 19th century, came to frustrate several different groups of people. Um, The first group were, were physicians who no longer had obvious medical reasons for performing abortions, the kind of conventional life of the woman, health of the woman exceptions, seemed to be less applicable at a time when obstetric and gynecological care had improved. So doctors who wanted to perform abortions for clients, particularly white, middle-class or upper-class women, wanted to shield themselves from liability and began lobbying for laws that would allow abortions under a variety, or wider variety in way of circumstances. Um, and so there were some successful efforts at reform starting in the mid-60s, laws that broadened the exceptions to existing abortion bans. By the late 60s, the reform movement had radicalized and expanded. It came to include feminists, who I think are the most um, visible and kind of well-known of the advocates for legalizing abortion. Um, who saw the issue, of course, in very different terms. They saw it as a matter of women's rights or women's liberation or sex equality, not as a matter of good medical practice and avoidance of tort liability. Uh, and many of the physicians who had initially favored reform over repeal of abortion bans came to conclude that the reform laws weren't working, that they were too vague and potentially too narrow to actually provide the kind of freedom to practice medicine that a lot of the physicians wanted. So by the late 60s, you began to see uh, broader demands for the repeal of all abortion restrictions um, in existing organizations like the Planned Parenthood, who was then called Planned Parenthood World Population, but now the Planned Parenthood Federation of America, um, as well as the formation of new uh, organizations like Naral. Uh, so by the time Roe was decided, there was a full-blown war in the states about whether abortion bans should be repealed, left alone, or modified. And when the repeal movement really came into force, there began to be a pro-life movement as well. Um, it tended to be formed on a state-by-state basis. Uh, initially, many of the pro-life organizations were funded or supported by local Catholic dioceses, although a number of prominent, in fact, many prominent pro-life activists in the period were also Protestant or Mormon or from other faiths. Uh, So these groups were quite successful at the state level, but they had yet to kind of cohere at the national level. So before Roe came down, the conflict had already escalated pretty considerably, And a lot of the ideas that would come to seem familiar, at least some of them, like the idea of a right to life or a woman's right to control her own body, were already
1: circulating. Okay. So in focusing so heavily on the effects of the Supreme Court's decision, have scholars exaggerated the importance of judicial intervention?
0: Yes, I think they have, and I I mean, I think this is pretty evident in a, a variety of ways that Roe comes up. So in the current Supreme Court, both Justices Scalia and Ginsburg point to the aftermath of Roe in talking about what needs to be done with abortion jurisprudence in the future. So for Justice Scalia, the problem was that Roe invented a right whole cloth without looking at constitutional text or history. Um, And he thinks that this created a kind of popular pro-life backlash, not only to the decision, but to the idea of judicial activism. So the solution in his mind is to overrule Roe and to reinstate a kind of more democratically legitimate form of uh, constitutional interpretation. Justice Ginsburg uh, famously and repeatedly has argued that the Roe court caused a backlash because it moved too fast too soon and relied on privacy rather than equality reason, which was more constitutionally problematic. So in explaining what happened, both of them are focusing a great deal on what Roe said when Roe came down, in other words, on the judiciary. You see this in constitutional scholars' work, um, particularly when they're using Roe as a case study of what kind of approach judges should or should not take. Uh, Roe is often kind of the cautionary tale about what can go wrong when judges make certain unwise interpretive moves. And even outside of law, Roe seemed to be kind of a transformative moment that gave rise to the religious right, that um, empowered pro-life extremists, that bequeathed the women's movement, a kind of unfortunate choice-based framework that leaves out poor women and women of color. So the, the narrative has been pretty heavily dominated by Roe. And what I found in general was that, first, the world of abortion politics that we've attributed to Roe didn't really exist immediately after the decision. And in fact, there were a variety of alternative paths and possibilities that activists explored pretty vigorously for the better part of a decade after Roe came down. And second, I found that a lot of the kind of polarization and dysfunction we blamed on the Supreme Court came later and for reasons having little and so, or sometimes nothing to do with what the court said. So uh, I think we missed both where we were after Roe and how we got where we are now. Okay.
1: So just expanding on what you just mentioned, how does your work differ from the conventional wisdom that Roe prematurely ended debate about the meaning or scope of abortion rights? That, yeah, I think it's a helpful uh, clarification question. So
0: uh, one of the things I don't think... Many scholars have gotten wrong, or, or at least some. There's, there's been a kind of n- new school of thought that suggests correctly that some compromises on abortion itself were impossible well before Roe. And I think that's true. So in this way, the, the argument is sort of Roe isn't to blame because a lot of the mess had already been made. And I think that's right with respect to abortion. But I think that if you look a little bit beyond Roe in terms of understanding the, the rise of contemporary abortion law and politics, you see in part that a lot of compromises on other gender issues were possible after Roe. So the kind of modern culture wars as we now know them can't be attributed in a kind of simple or even straightforward way to the court's decision. The, the other thing I think that became clear to me was that uh, debate about abortion rights could have meant and, in fact, did mean a lot of different things to different activists, that both the pro-life and pro-choice movements were intensely divided, as many social movements are, and that there were viable and, I think, resonant alternative ideas about what it meant to be pro-life and pro-choice for quite a while after the court's decision. So while there wasn't much room for substantive debate on when abortion should be permitted. There was a lot of, I think, room for common ground on the idea of something like women's right, a woman's right to control her own body, or restrictions on fetal research, or things that seem now to be synonymous with abortion, but I think at the time uh, seemed for other people to be a separate conversation in which people could find some kind of common ground. It, the, the kind of fairly bright line, pro-life, pro-choice categories that we're so familiar with now hadn't coalesced yet. And when they did, they left out a lot of the people who both participated in abortion politics in the 70s and even many Americans who just observed from the sidelines.
1: Next, could you tell us a little bit about how abortion became synonymous with choice and um, just give us a little bit of the background of how it, how it once was a movement that showcase concern about population control and public health and then became such a singular issue? Sure. So I think the story has
0: two parts. Um, the first is a story about how the pro-choice movement became synonymous with the women's movement and with women's rights. And the second is a story about how the feminists who came to power in pro-choice organizations embraced this idea of choice rather than a lot of the alternative framings that had been available. So I'll start with the first story. Um, I always thought that the pro-choice movement and the women's movement were more or less the same movement. And it's true that women's reproductive lives always drove demands for reform or repeal of abortion restrictions. But the organized pro-choice movement in the late 60s and early 70s um, that included organizations like Planned Parenthood and NARAL and even to some extent feminist organizations, didn't always emphasize arguments that women had a right to abortion regardless of the policy consequences of legalization. And my reading of the archival material and even the oral histories I did is is partly this was a pragmatic strategy. Feminism, after all, was still new and controversial in this period, and it seemed to be asking for something radical using an even more radical rationale. So organizations like Naral. Hope to persuade what one activist called gray-haired legislators and judges all over the country by highlighting the desirable policy consequences that would follow if abortion were legalized. Uh, So, for example, when New York repealed all of its abortion restrictions, Planned Parenthood um, emphasized the fact that after legalization, the city's welfare expenses came down, rates of unwed pregnancy and illegitimate births declined, uh, essentially playing to more, a more conservative audience that didn't really care about women's rights to control their own body, but might be swayed by some of these desirable policy benefits. Population control was a big one of those because at the time, population control was a kind of bipartisan popular issue. It had supporters from the Democratic Party, as well as some famous Republicans like uh, w- future President George H.W. Bush, Um, And the reason I think it had a broad appeal was because it covered a lot of ground. On the one hand, it promised the kind of lower welfare costs and almost kind of neo-eugenic successes that might have appealed to some racists or refugees from the eugenic legal reform movement of the early 20th century, certainly to fiscal conservatives who didn't want to pay for welfare programs. Uh, It also spoke to younger Americans' interests in sexual liberation and stewardship of the environment. So arguing that legalizing abortion would reduce the rate of population growth promised to speak to both conservatives and liberals who might be willing to legalize abortion. So before Roe, groups like Naral and Planned Parenthood and even the National Organization for Women weren't just using the public health arguments that you see now, the idea that Absent legal abortion, women were forced into botched, dangerous, illegal abortion. They were also spotlighting the kind of population control benefits that would flow from legalization. Feminists had always argued that there should be a women's rights framing pretty much in all of these organizations. But before the court's decision, they often lost in internal battles. Uh, the court's decision changed that, I think, For a variety of reasons, it coincidentally came down at a time that population control and the movement supporting it were kind of wracked by scandal, both at home and abroad. Uh, The idea that one now associates with population control, that it's both racist and racialist and potentially coercive, seemed much more convincing when there were revelations about involuntary sterilizations in the United States and the misuse of family planning, funding, um, in programs in the developing world. At the same time, Roe obviously framed abortion as a right, if not in the feminist terms some activists would have wanted. So feminists were able to use Roe to gain leverage in some of these organizations and how much they changed is striking. By the end of the seventies, Planned Parenthood, NARAL, and, and the National Organization for Women were all led by women who described abortion in strikingly feminist terms. Uh, in the late 60s, really none of them were, even the National Organization for Women. So that showed me that the relationship between women's movement and, and the pro-choice movement has always been complicated and likely will be in the future. W- why did feminists embrace choice, which doesn't seem to be an incredibly feminist thing to do? After all, there have been a, a wide variety of feminist scholars since Roe came down, who pointed out some of the flaws in a choice framework, particularly for women who need the support of the state to raise children or even to access reproductive care. Uh, what I found here was surprising, too. There were many feminists, both radical feminists and otherwise, who originally used Roe's language of choice and privacy to make revolutionary demands, and their claim was pretty simple. It was that Choice or the right to choose had no meaning if a woman didn't have access to childcare, healthcare, a living wage, uh, and so on. That essentially, without adequate state support, the right to choice was meaningless. These arguments eventually lost support, not because of the Roe decision, but because the political environment moved so far to the right. Um, in the early 80s, Ronald Reagan had a landslide win. That brought him to the White House, but more importantly, the kind of politics of small government and irregulation and free markets that he favored seemed to appeal to voters, even in the Democratic Party. And generally left-leaning politicians put forward their own proposals for shrinking the welfare state and decreasing the number of rights women would have to the kind of health care or child care that feminists had envisioned. So the pro-choice movement what we now would call the pro-choice movement, retooled the language of choice. Um, and they did so partly because, at the time, leaders of groups like Naral believed they were losing, um, particularly in electoral politics. They thought that the pro-life movement was better at influencing primaries and at frightening politicians. So leaders like Karen Mulhauser of Naral concluded that the way forward for the pro-choice movement was to create a message that appealed to cautious and maybe even ambivalent voters and politicians. So choice then became shorthand not for access to services, but the kind of small government freedom from state meddling that Ronald Reagan had championed. Uh, and this this was always controversial in the movement because it represented a, a pretty big move away from feminist principles, but it seemed necessary in the short Term to consolidate any kind of gains that the pro-choice movement had made. So the kind of choice idea that so many scholars have criticized was neither really the only way that activists could attack Roe and nor was it really attributable to Roe. The kind of more small government strategy that many people have criticized was more a product of the politics of the early 1980s than the decision of the
1: Supreme Court. So now could you talk about uh, the forces that brought together the political right and the pro-choice? Sorry, the pro-life movement. Yeah, absolutely. So um,
0: I found that the pro-life movement, it was particularly divided. Um, in the early 70s, there were fights, for example, about whether the movement should oppose access to birth control, or sex education in schools, or an amendment that would um, guarantee equality for women under the Constitution. And in all of these battles, it became clear that there were always people who were deeply socially conservative, as well as people who were quite liberal, not in every way, but who liked certain aspects of second-wave feminism, who saw a fairly broad role for the state in helping the poor and any minority group. So the story was really one about why one faction won, when they really hadn't been doing very well for much of the 70s. I think the answer, again, wasn't Roe, because immediately after the court's decision, moderate pro-life groups or individuals played a prominent role really in every large contemporary organization, including Americans United for Life and the National Right to Life Committee. And they played an important role in lobbying for some landmark legislation, including the Pregnancy Discrimination Act. So what changed again, I think, had to do with the larger political climate. Uh, The first problem was one of money and political influence. The pro-life movement had courted a variety of groups and movements largely unsuccessfully for over a decade. But by the end of the seventies, the religious new right the religious right, excuse me, a new right had arrived on the political scene and the members of groups like the moral majority were all pro-life, but they were also socially conservative on a variety of other issues um, from school prayer to the equal rights amendment to busing. So, uh, At the time, the pro-life movement was generally financially strapped and desperate for political influence, and an alliance with the religious right and the new right offered just that. Uh, I think the second major shift involved political party realignment. For much of the 70s, neither party took a really strong stand on abortion, and this frustrated the pro-life movement in particular so much that it ran in a single-issue candidate for the presidency. Um, The closest anyone had come was Ronald Reagan during the 1976 Republican primary, but Reagan had lost. By 1980, this had changed dramatically. Reagan was the Republican Party's nominee. He was running um, on a platform that included a constitutional amendment that would ban all abortions. And the Democratic Party platform treated abortion as a valid constitutional right that was synonymous with privacy. So it was increasingly clear to the leaders of both pro-life and pro-choice organizations where the political future was. And for pro-lifers, that future was in a partnership with conservatives. I think finally there was a kind of unfortunate feedback loop in the sense that once pro-life groups adopted the rhetoric of their allies in the religious right, which included a kind of virulent anti-feminism, it became impossible for feminists to imagine collaborating with pro-life groups, even on issues that seemed nominally unrelated to abortion. And the more feminists in turn denounced the pro-life movement as anti-feminist, the more marginalized people who didn't fit that type became in the organizations to which they belonged. So by the early 80s, if you were not kind of a good fit for the new pro-choice or pro-life movement, you could either kind of persist in small organizations that had little influence, you could drop out and leave the fight to someone else, or you could adapt and set aside some of your policies or principles
1: in order to get whatever result you wanted on abortion. Do you think Roe produced a backlash that empowered extremists in the anti-abortion movement? I think that's a hard question to answer, just because the more research I did,
0: the more complicated my idea of extremists and extremism became. Um, I don't think Roe empowered extremists in the sense that, certainly on the pro-life side, everyone in that movement believed that an unborn child had a right to life, rooted in the 14th Amendment. And well before the Roe decision, they weren't willing to compromise on abortion access at all, and in fact expected the courts to recognize a right um, for the fetus. Uh, I I also don't know if the people who came to lead the movement after Roe can really be thought of as extremists. So uh, here I think it's helpful to kind of hear a few examples. Um, The by the end of the 70s, the people running the pro-life movement were what I call in the book incrementalists. And th- these are the people who in large part are still at the helm of most major pro-life organizations. Uh, the incrementalists had kind of grown up in a movement that was focused on a constitutional amendment overruling row. This was kind of seen to be a restoration of the rights that an unborn child had always had. And it was also seen to be kind of the perfect or ideal solution. Uh, so for a long time, that had been the movement's preoccupation. But by the end of the '70s, and particularly the early '80s, when the movement made little progress in getting this constitutional amendment, and when in fact, even during a Republican presidency and a sympathetic Congress, there was no real ga- uh, ground gained then a lot of activists in the movement concluded that a change in strategy was needed. So incrementalists, many of them were originally cause attorneys, proposed that the movement instead try to get some kind of victory in the short term to kind of energize activists, to scare politicians into taking the pro-life movement seriously, and to maybe set the stage for something bigger later. So their strategy had several parts. First, activists would lobby for legislation in the states that the Supreme Court might uphold. Second, they would defend it in the courts. And third, they would, during presidential elections, try to secure wins for candidates who would pick the right kind of people for the federal bench. Uh, Incrementalists became incredibly influential in most major pro-life groups, uh, and their ascendancy was controversial. So many of their colleagues saw them not as extremists, but as kind of compromisers and sellouts. Because after all, the exchange made in incrementalism was a short-term victory in return for accepting that some and often many abortions would remain legal. So from the standpoint of the more absolutist pro-lifers, what had happened was that the movement was willing to gain political influence by authorizing the sacrifice of lots and lots of babies. That would have been the absolutist perspective. And incrementalists themselves acknowledged in some ways that compromise was necessary and perhaps even morally sound. So if those were the people who were and are leading the pro-life movement, I think calling them extremists obscures as much as it reveals. So I don't mean to suggest that there aren't elements of extremism really on either side, but I think that using the label doesn't help us understand what the stakes of the battle are, or really the identity of the people who are fighting it.
1: How does your work reconsider claims that Roe prompted a popular crisis of faith in judicial legitimacy?
0: Yeah, this is also a fairly commonly made claim. Um, It's one you see, again, made by Justice Scalia, and by... Scholars really kind of across the ideological spectrum who think that Roe was a disaster for the reputation of the Supreme Court. Um, that may well be, but it wasn't particularly true for the pro-life movement in the immediate aftermath of the court's decision. Um, that wasn't to say that pro-life activists thought that the court got it right in Roe. They didn't. But the argument wasn't that the court had made up a right that didn't exist. Pro-lifers were instead angry that the court hadn't used more kind of bold interpretive tools like substantive due process to recognize a fundamental right to life that would protect an unborn child. And activists for the better part of a decade after Roe really weren't interested in the politics of opposition to judicial activism or the kind of early forms of first-generation originalism that were emerging in the academy. Um, Indeed, when Congress actually proposed an amendment that would just have overruled Roe and left the issue to the states, the federal government, and really to the people, every pro-life organization more or less came out against it. And they believed, or their leaders believed, that a constitutional amendment that didn't recognize the right to life and functionally ban abortions was just as bad as Roe, because the real flaw in Roe, as they saw it, was the fact that the court had ignored the science involving fetal life and the long-standing, deeply rooted rights of the unborn child. It's obvious that since then, the pro-life movement has picked up on many of the arguments about judicial legitimacy that flourished in the academy some time ago. But again, I think that shift was at least partly tactical. When the movement was aligning with the religious right, it made a great deal of sense to use the rhetoric of pro-lifers' new allies, both in the White House and in social conservative movements. And Ronald Reagan and his movement conservative allies were angry about a lot of Supreme Court decisions, not just Roe. Many of the decisions of the Warren and Burger Court on matters like school prayer, busing, Miranda warnings, criminal procedure, all struck these movement conservatives in the Reagan White House as examples of judicial overreaching. So at a time when the pro-life movement's relationships with these groups were kind of tenuous, uh, activists had every incentive to use the same kind of language to express their hostility to Roe. And I think many of them became true believers in um, the dangers of judicial overreaching because they translated long-standing anger about the court's decision into those terms and because they soon came to see that the only way to achieve anything was to align with people who shared, uh, I think, deep concern about what they saw as
1: judicial tyranny. I guess this is the opposite of my last question, but you instead describe Roe as a canvas onto which act- activists could project different strategic aims. We can you talk about that a little bit?
0: Yeah, I, I was struck by how, particularly by how pro-life groups were happy to talk about Roe and to describe it in ways that departed pretty radically from the language of the Supreme Court's decision. So what I found was that immediately after Roe, both pro-choice and pro-life groups were pretty happy to use language similar to the court's decision. In other words, to present abortion rights as belonging both to women and physicians and not to be primarily about matters of autonomy or equality for women. And they had a lot of reasons for doing that. Uh, From the standpoint of the pro-choice movement, there's a certain amount of both complacency and fear that followed the court's decision. There was a sense that the justices had settled the abortion conflict, or at least come as close as possible to doing so, uh, as anyone could imagine, and that it would do no good to kind of relitigate the rationale or meaning of abortion rights. So, describing Roe as a decision involving both physicians and women would legitimize abortion with a more conservative political audience, and would also deny pro-lifers the platform they would need to persuade the American public. Pro-lifers, I think, by contrast, believed, as they may, they seem to now, with the reintroduction of issues like fetal heartbeat legislation, that the real slam dunk was science, and particularly fetology, evidence of how human life developed in the womb. So pro-life activists were particularly angry about the fact that the court had relied on medicine and even science in reaching the result. So focusing on what pro-lifers saw as a perversion of American medicine spoke to I think many activists most deeply held beliefs and also seemed to them to be a necessary step if there was ever going to be any reversal of what the court had done. Later in the decade, I began to see the kind of idea of Roe that most people have before they go to law school, the idea that Roe involved a woman's right to choose. And again, I think there were both political and personal reasons that activists began reframing court's decision. Uh, For the pro-choice movement, there was a real fear that the pro-life movement was successfully using pro-woman, pro-life arguments of the kind that we still see uh, with laws involving things like informed consent or what pro-lifers call a woman's right to know. Uh, At a time when women were leading a variety of pro-life organizations, feminists realized that they could no longer take for granted that women would necessarily support legal abortion and widespread access to it. And so movements that had kind of worried primarily about the support of people who were uncertain about abortion realized that they had to reach out once again to women and explain the relationship between rights that women enjoyed and access to abortion. Uh, As pro-lifers, by contrast, aligned with the religious right, condemning feminism and condemning Roe in the same breath made a lot of strategic sense, because that was a way to cement a partnership that pro-lifers needed, both for financial and political reasons. So what interested me about all of this in part was that Roe became a really important tool for movements that we often think of as being kind of controlled by the court's decision or simply reacting passively to the court's decision. Um, Activists on either side of the question used their own really savvy ways to advance their goals, even though, of course, people had personal convictions about what the court had said and whether it was good or bad. They never let go of the fact that judicial decisions, much like the text of the Constitution,
1: could be a really potent, symbolic weapon, both in law and politics. Do you think Roe eliminated the possibility of alliances between those for and against abortion? Uh, it certainly didn't in the 70s. So
0: some of the issues that I noticed were the ones that you often see people bring up when criticizing uh, the other side. So, for example, pro-choice Activists will often say, if someone is pro-life, then why aren't they for rights for new mothers or for children after they've been born? In other words, why don't they make it a more friendly world for poor people who are having children or for poor children? And pro-life activists will say that the pro-choice movement can't possibly be interested in fetal life because pro-choice groups will often support... Uh, the deregulation of fetal research, even when there's no obvious conflict with women's uh, reproductive autonomy. In the 70s, there seemed to be, or at least people were interested in compromises on all of those issues. So pro-life groups were interested in issues from kind of anti-discrimination protections that seemed to be consistent with their agenda. So at the state level, pro-life groups lobbied for bans on illegitimacy discrimination and even the word the removal of the word illegitimacy from birth certificates something that people in the pro-choice movement on the left found sympathetic Um, in some states there were even instances in which pro-life groups were siding with early gay lesbian bisexual transgender and queer groups to demand bans on marital status discrimination Uh, for pro-life groups these laws denigrated motherhood and, by authorizing discrimination, coerced abortion. Uh, w- something similar happened with respect to pregnancy discrimination. Uh, pro-life groups, again, thought that it denigrated motherhood to force women to choose between family and career uh, and coerce women to have abortions if they had to choose between uh, an income and child rearing or child bearing. Uh, there were also compromises uh, in addition to these kind of welfare or discrimination-oriented discrimination, excuse me, oriented compromises, there was some interest in pro-choice groups about at least exploring the possibility of some kind of fetal protection that didn't conflict with abortion itself. Um, during early debates about the regulation of uh, fetal research, the leading kind of supporter of at least exploring regulations, Ted Kennedy, who was also a very strong supporter at that time of abortion rights and even of Medicaid funding for abortion. Uh, Kennedy at the time saw fetuses as kind of another human being subject to experimentation, much as men of color or women of color had been, uh, or people with mental disabilities. And groups like the American Civil Liberties Union heavily debated having a policy on that would recognize some fetal rights, but recognize that women's reproductive rights, when there was a conflict, would always remain paramount. So there were actual compromises that became law, and there were possible compromises that were pretty intensely debated between leading organizations. Um, Whether those compromises, I think, are available now, is a trickier question. It's certainly harder given that I think most pro-choice groups see any fetal protective law as a kind of sneak attack on Roe. And given that the kinds of welfare legislation or anti-discrimination legislation that moderates favored in the 70s is now anathema to the Republican Party, which the pro-life movement sees as a key ally, makes it harder. But recently, um, when the Supreme Court decided a pregnancy discrimination case, Young versus United parcel service, you actually saw uh, pro-life groups on the side of the workers demanding more robust anti-discrimination protections. So I think that the kinds of politics and beliefs that could create a compromise are probably pleasant, present today, but that some of the kind of larger political and legal conditions make those kinds of alliances much, much harder than they would have been in the decade
1: after Roe. So how do you think the social movement politics in the decade after Roe has affected the contemporary abortion battle?
0: There are a few ways that I think are really interesting. Probably the most obvious is that the kind of polarization that scholars on either side of the abortion issue so vigorously condemn, uh, Came into being in the decade after Roe, not not because of Roe, but because of the kind of contemporary political alignment that we still haven't moved beyond. Um, the both parties taking positions on abortion, and making it an election issue, uh, the rise of kind of explicitly religious social conservative movements that made abortion uh, kind of shorthand for a range of other beliefs. All of those things fell into place in the decade after Roe and still shape abortion politics. Uh, the birth of anti-abortion incrementalism, which is still the strategy that I think is at work in the cases that the Supreme Court may consider. Um, laws like hospital admitting privilege laws or um, right to know laws, the kinds of abortion restrictions and the principle underlying them, I think, was developed in the seventies and pro-lifers have been pursuing it ever since, um, to really until today, um, the emergence of the idea of a right to choose as the, the defining issue for those who favor legal abortion uh, first, I think, surfaced in the decade after the Supreme Court decision. And certainly the kind of identity that we associate with the pro-choice and pro-life movement was much more clearly and sharply defined in the decade after Roe uh, than it was for some time. So uh, obviously a great deal has changed. Um, the kinds of anti-clinic violence that uh, we saw really more commonly during the 80s made uh, the conflict much more heated and tense um, some of the strategies you see, like the kind of guerrilla filming of Planned Parenthood, obviously weren't in place in the 70s. But many of the kind of landmark features of the debate, like most simply what it means to be pro-life and pro-choice, uh, evolved in the decade after Roe, row and for reasons that went beyond the court's decision.
1: Okay. To conclude, I'd love to know what you're working on now.
0: Uh, so I'm, I'm working on a new book project that kind of expands on the idea that Roe and the right to privacy were used by social movements for a lot of surprising purposes. While I was writing the first book, I kept coming across movements that had borrowed from Roe's right to choose and used it for really surprising things, like a right for the mentally ill to refuse antipsychotic drugs, a right for extremely conservative groups to... Uh, create a right to choose one's own course of medical treatment, free of the influence of the FDA, uh, rights, for example, for early gay and lesbian groups to control their sexual lives, um, even rights to access to welfare. And so that made me wonder why so many groups were attracted to this idea of privacy, in spite of it, the limitations that so many scholars illuminate, and then why the idea of privacy that I know was so synonymous with Roe and so synonymous with small government. So the project kind of traces some of the more surprising and innovative uses of privacy through the 70s and then tracks why and how they disappeared uh, in the 80s and 90s.
1: Well, that sounds like an extremely fascinating and much-needed project, uh, as well as the one that we talked about today. And I really want to thank you for being on the show today.
0: Well, thanks. It was a lot of fun. I'm glad you had me.